Well, I own a pair of expensive prescription sunglasses that are not quite right. I can't tell you precisely how they're wrong, but the lenses ever so slightly distort my periphery, and if I wear them long enough, strain my eyes and give me headaches. Turns out, just a little distortion in the lens can be a big deal. I bring this up because every single one of us, whether we wear glasses or not, has a lens through which we perceive reality. Conscience. The lens through which we see the world as well as ourselves. Conscience makes us self-aware. And keeping a clear-eyed conscience requires vigilance. Because we can see in scripture three ways the lens of conscience can be gradually distorted or bent, often without us being consciously aware. Inward, outward, or if far enough in either direction, shattered. And I believe it's wise to be clear on these four types of conscience and to occasionally check our own periphery, striving for the only one that's healthy or clear-eyed. If you need an example, look to St. Paul. He claimed in Acts 23.1 to have lived with a clear conscience before God all his life. He strove, he said in Acts 24.16, always to keep his conscience clear before God and man. This doesn't in any way mean that Paul was perfect. In fact, far from it. As he says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which we read today, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. At one time, you know, he was a violent persecutor of the church, but a clear-eyed conscience helped him recognize how we always, including him, know only in part and, and see through a glass always, darkly. As he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. So we can make great errors and hurt other people greatly. But a person of clear-eyed conscience is quick to confess when they, have when they perceive that they have erred or are told about their sin. That's why when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul was quick to confess. He didn't justify and explain his actions or defend his sin. I have a, a friend who likes to say, usually when we get confronted with something, we become Jedis. We justify, explain, and defend I, which doesn't make any, uh, I guess, uh, grammatical sense, but works for him. And King David, when he was confronted by Nathan for his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah, did not respond, mistakes were made, but said only, I have sinned against the Lord. And when a person of clear-eyed conscience reads passages such as today, or really in any and all of scripture, the first question is always, where am I in this story? 
One of the tensions with conscience is that as a lens, it can bend outward. This breeds arrogance. People with, an arrog uh, with arrogant consciences tend to think too highly of themselves. They become self-absorbed and at the same time, self-unaware. They begin to excuse their own sin as Cain did after slaying his brother Abel. Accused of wrongdoing, he retorted in Genesis 4-9, am I my brother's keeper? person with an arrogant conscience sees others as inferior and they're mostly for their own purposes, which should be obvious to anyone are the right purposes. But the lens of conscience can also bend inward. This is a wounded conscience. The wounds are often the result of painful incidents or traumas from the past, abuse from their family of origin, or maybe incidents of drug or alcohol abuse, feeling abandoned, sexual promiscuity, or significant involvement in pornography. A person with a wounded conscience has to fight the temptation to take others' emotional hostage. This happened in the Corinthian church where those with wounded consciences took on the role of victim and denied freedom to others. People with a wounded conscience think too little of themselves, though this does not in any way mean they think of themselves too little. This breeds an insecurity regarding God's love and his good world, and is why some Christians are so often so uneasy about the liberty that other believers enjoy, say, in drinking alcohol or enjoying particular movies. This hostage-taking plays hell in relationships and in communities. And people with wounded consciences tend to overlook how in Titus 1.5, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their consciences are defiled. Finally, when the conscience bends too far in either direction, the lens shatters. Paul's word for that in 1 Timothy 4.2 is seared. It's where we get the English word cauterized. And with a cauterized conscience, the flow of blood stops and self-awareness dies. These are people who never confess and always accuse. They bully and belittle. Both distortions of conscience, inward and outward, wounded and arrogant, cause people to be emotionally myopic or nearsighted, seeing the world as preeminently about themselves and their needs or desires. Galatians 5.26, a passage that I wanted to point to last week but just talked way too long, points these two distortions out and their cause, actually, very astutely. Paul writes to them, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The Greek word here for conceit is kenodoxos, a, a contraction of two words, kenos, which means vain, and doxa, which means worship. It's where we get the word doxology. It means self-worship. And its byproducts are envying, a wounded conscience behavior, and by provoking an arrogant conscience behavior. But they're both ultimately about conceit, self 
worship. And when all of life turns an interior direction, the expressive individualism that our culture encourages and even demands, as opposed to an exterior direction, the denial of self that Jesus calls us to, then the entire conversation we have in our own heads moves from one of responsibility. What good am I responsible for? Who am I responsible to? And who shapes me and reminds me of who I am? to a conversation about rights that are simply demanded. I want this. I want that. And we can see this in spades in our nation today. Throughout history, there have always been institutions of local community where, where mediating structures, that were mediating structures of our lives that helped keep us accountable, that helped keep us known and kept us connected and kind of refereed our tendency to conceit. People went to church. They played sports. They were in bowling leagues. They were in the PTA. And those things are radically dissolved in our culture. We just don't have them anymore. Because we can get whatever we want in the palm of our hand alone. And you give everyone unlimited radical freedom and take away moral boundaries, and there's only one way that math comes out. A nation of self-worshippers, otherwise known as narcissists. And you will never, ever meet a narcissist with a clear-eyed conscience. And both distortions of conscience, wounded and arrogant, with different motivations are disposed to manipulating others to get what they want. In fact, manipulation may be one of the first signs that a conscience is bending. So, okay, it took me a little while, but we're finally here. Today's gospel reading from the end of Luke 10. A case study, I believe, in manipulation. Manipulation takes many forms, and most of us, if we're honest, have to admit that at one time or another we've been guilty of manipulation and we've probably all been manipulated by someone else. Regardless of the individual or situation, in Luke, uh, in verse 40 of Luke 10, we see the two basic elements that are pretty much the foundation of all manipulation. To draw people onto your side and to demand something. So the first element. We see that in verse 40. And it's seen right in Martha's statement, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. That's the first element, is to, to draw the other person onto your side. An arrogant conscience might do this by reminding you how much they've done for you or by reminding you how fortunate you are to be on their team. A wounded conscience might play the victim card in order to make you feel sorry for them. Martha does it by asking, don't you care? Don't you have any sympathy for my suffering? And then the second element demands something. If you're grateful, I'd think you'd show it. Or if you love me, you'll do something about it. Or tell her to help me. Where are you? in this story. 
In my humble opinion, Martha is blatantly trying to manipulate Jesus into doing what she thinks is best. And here's what I imagine, because of my own proclivities, might motivate Martha's manipulation. Her need for approval and achievement. The village of Bethany was not a big place, what we'd call today a little bedroom community or suburb of Jerusalem, about a mile and a half east of the city on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And, in most, and as in most small towns, especially in the ancient world, everyone would have known everyone else's business. Last week, I, I talked about this in the province of Galatia where they lived socially thick lives. Lauren and I are getting ready to go back to the small town in Indiana where we spent 19 years. And it's funny because people there in the newspaper, the first thing that they look at is the police blotter. Because it sells every ticket, every visit by the police, and it's all right there. And you know some of those people every time. Whew. But if, if someone from the village got into trouble, everyone knew about it. Or if someone did something significant, it would have been a secret to no one. So Jesus comes to this little village with his 12 disciples and almost surely an entourage following him. And anybody who was anybody in Bethany would likely have been attending this feast with this popular and well-known rabbi. And here's poor Martha, solely responsible for preparing this huge meal for all the guests, making sure they had plenty to eat, plenty to drink, and making sure all of them had a good time. I imagine, but this is pure speculation, this is Martha's chance to shine, an opportunity for her to show that she's a woman of significance in Bethany. Martha has an opportunity to, to really build her brand. She'll have earned everyone's approval. And there's a second motivation I imagine here and it's achievement. A chance to achieve, achieve something significant, maybe an opportunity to do something that will be talked about for years, to throw the best dang dinner party Bethany has ever seen. Achievement is slightly different than approval because in approval you're trying to earn people's respect and have them look highly upon you. You get glory and worth from the approval of those around you. While in achievement, you get glory from having done it yourself. I did it. I climbed the corporate ladder. I came from this small town, and now my name is in the newspaper. <laughs> now it's up in lights. I did that. But do you see how in entirely self-referential self both of these are? There's nothing inherently wrong with either approval or achievement. But as ends in themselves both are, despite their momentary high, dangerous. And the real danger is that they can both lead to addiction, an addiction to using other people to gain your sense of worth, a need to feel the high however fleeting of the approval of others, a need to, to feel significant, even if that means using or abusing others, a need to say, I'm somebody, I surpassed everyone around me. Each of these two motivations are to a greater or less ex lesser extent a part of most of us from time to time. Do you ever see it in yourself? What does that say to your conscience? And, and to we who are Christians, I have to ask, why do we feel such a need for human approval? 
Why do we feel such a keen desire to achieve and to tell everybody that we have? Is it at least partly because we see our salvation primarily as sin management, believing that Jesus merely paid for our sins, which is a big deal, but is also a perilously truncated story of the gospel. Let me explain. Before you came to faith in Christ, you saw that you were a sinner. You saw that you were in need. You saw that you carried a negative balance with God. And then when you put your faith in Christ and you realize that he paid for your sins, he brought your negative balance up to zero. But now you assume you have the responsibility to keep from falling back into a negative balance with God, to strive really, really hard to earn God's acceptance. And that is just guaranteed to lead to a life of drivenness and frustration. Trying to earn God's acceptance leads only to slavery and loneliness. What you must believe is the whole story that Jesus Christ did not just pay for your sins, but he also gave you his righteousness. That everything that was his, his glory, his worth, his acceptance with God, his status with God is now yours. Think about that. The love that God had for his son, he now has for you. And when you let his achievement and his approval and his glory become your achievement and your approval and your glory, then you'll be free to live the life that God intends for you to live, clear-eyed and fully alive, not needing the approval and admiration of others because God approves of you and adores you in Christ. And the glory of God, Irenaeus said, is a person fully alive. By the way, back page of your bulletin, you guys all have a list of... Um, scripture verses and truths about our identity in Christ, and it'd be lovely if you would spend some time with that this week. It will help in this regard a lot. So back to this case study in manipulation and a look at some of its results. And we can see them beginning right there in verse 40 again, where Luke tells us that Martha was distracted. She was trying to do too much. I believe this is because she was striving to win the approval of Jesus, the disciples, and the villagers by pulling off the best dinner party in Bethany's history. I imagine she had four pots in the fire, was running around making sure everyone had plenty to drink, and was trying to make conversation with a few important people. She was running here, there, and everywhere. Does this sound like anyone you know? The gospel tells us that she was anxious not just concerned, but anxious, worried, worried that things weren't going as planned, worried that people weren't having a good time, and worried that she wouldn't achieve what she needed to achieve to pull off the perfect dinner party. She worried that God didn't have a handle on the situation, and so she had to take matters into her own hands. Does this sound like anyone you know? Further, further, Martha, Martha was troubled or upset. She was irritated and even angry with Mary and probably with Jesus because he wasn't going along with her agenda. And we can see how all of this led to isolation and aloneness, at least in Martha's mind. You can see it in her appeal. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. 
But thank God the story doesn't end there. And we see how Jesus responds to Martha uh, in verses 41 and 42 when he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. The double usage of her name, Martha, Martha, isn't insignificant. It's actually very important because in biblical times, the double usage of a name was meant for the expression of extreme or intense emotion. When King David lost his first son, Absalom, in battle, he cries out in his grief, Absalom, Absalom. My son, my son, Jesus Christ in his excruciation cries out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Seth Bakhthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus reaches out to Martha in the same way. Martha, Martha. So the first thing we see in Jesus' response to Martha is that he loves her very much. Jesus loves even manipulators and desires to heal even approval and achievement junkies. And the second thing we see in Jesus' response is that Mary has chosen what is better. Now, I want to be careful here because this passage is not saying that people should stop working hard and start meditating and journaling every moment of every day. I, candidly, y'all know I have ADD. And for me, that sounds like hell. In fact, if I were to go to hell, that's what they would assign me to do. <laughs> this is why I read my sermons. Not because I can't talk, but because you don't want the stream of consciousness that would ensue if I did not. Nor would I. Some people like to be active and busy, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing. This passage also isn't a dichotomy between secular and sacred somehow, because there is no dichotomy. It's all sacred. This passage is not saying that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. I believe what this passage is saying is that there is a priority in life, and we need to be clear on it. If God and other people are a means for your glory, then you will not experience life in the way God intended, and the lens of your conscience will always be prone to distortion. But if, on the other hand, people become you, you and other people become a mean, means for God's glory, then you will begin to experience the freedom and the joy and the life that God intends for you to have. So how do we begin to get our priorities straight? To order our loves, in the words of St. Augustine. We focus on the one that Mary points us to. Because despite the way this passage is almost always taught, Mary is not the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero of this story. And all Mary does is, is point to him. The only reason Mary can even sit at Jesus' feet is because the Son of God left the Father's side and came to earth so that we who were cut off could be seated next to God himself. See, the gospel isn't about making bad people nice. The gospel is not about making nice people nicer. 
The gospel is a life-transforming power that says, look at you. Do you see that you're an approval junkie? Do you see that you're driven by achievement? Do you see that you're all wrapped up in yourself and you're distracted and anxious and troubled and alone? God sees where you are and says, Lauren, Lauren, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Stephen, Stephen, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Can you sit in God's presence focusing on him, knowing that Christ not only paid for your sins, but that he also freely gives you his righteousness, that he gives you his approval, that he gives you his achievement, that everything Jesus has achieved is now yours by faith. If you let that truth sink in, I believe you will begin to live a life of freedom from the addiction and approval of others and the addiction of achievement, and your conscience will begin to move toward clarity. Just one last note, real quick. This isn't the last meal Martha, Mary, and Messiah share. The last meal that they share is in John 12, sometime after the raising of Lazarus and just a week or so before the crucifixion. And on his way to Calvary, <laughs> Jesus takes the time to stop in a little suburb of Jerusalem to share a meal with Martha, Mary, Lazarus, his disciples, and probably a number of villagers. And we find Martha once again cooking up a storm for this crowd. But you know what? This time, she isn't distracted and anxious and troubled. She isn't worried about what other people are thinking. She isn't fretting about this great opportunity to earn glory for herself. She isn't even troubled by her sister, Mary, once again, sitting at Jesus' feet, only this time, literally pouring out their family's life savings of expensive perfume on his feet. And I believe it's because this time they both know who Messiah is and what he came to do and who he makes them. The son of God came to earth to be cut off so that we who were cut off from God could become daughters and sons. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where are you in this story? 